scary. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Nee Lachlan. Grab something warm to drink and sit down, get ready to be told some stories, because this is a very special episode of From Paper to People. This episode is about ancestors. It's about family stories. It's about foods from the past. And it's about celebrations of Halloween in the United States from the past. So We're going to have a number of things. Last year, I promised this episode and I didn't come through, for which I apologize, mea culpa. But this year, I've gotten together all of the recordings that I collected last year from listeners. And some of them are direct listeners telling stories. Some of them are interviews or stories told by their family members or ancestors. I will be providing some of the same. I'll also be giving some recipes that are seasonal, both for the Northern Hemisphere and for the Southern Hemisphere, I hope. I am waiting at this particular moment from the Northern Hemisphere anyway. And I'll also be giving you some articles from a newspaper that I really enjoy. And I want to start with that now. So there's a website I am really enjoying using, and it's a... a, old newspaper website, newspapers.library.in.gov, and it's for Indiana. I have a lot of Indiana relatives, and I was looking up family members, and you can search by word, by name, etc., and I found a bunch of stories about my family in it. So the newspaper I'm looking at specifically is the Crawfordsville Weekly Journal from Crawfordsville, Indiana, and it's really funny because These articles from 1891 and 1893 discuss what was regular practice for Halloween. Now, if you want to see a visual depiction of what I'm discussing, watch the movie Meet Me in St. Louis and watch the Halloween quarter of the movie because it shows the kids getting together in the streets and they're all dressed in costumes and they steal all of the kind of old wood and old furniture and things like that that they can and they have a great big bonfire in the middle of the street and I always thought that that was funny but maybe a little bit of a an exaggeration and that's supposed to happen in St. Louis Missouri well it turns out it's not an exaggeration (laughs) at all because in 1893 this article appeared in the Crawfordsville Weekly Journal it was the 3rd of November 1893 just a very short note, and it says, the village boys were out and masked on Halloween night and carried things their own way during the night. Gates, wagons, and buggies were scattered promiscuously over the town, some of which have not been replaced at this writing. 
Can you imagine? And this one, 7th of November, 1891, also the Crawfordsville Weekly Journal. Halloween was duly observed by our young people Saturday evening. Quite a number kept open house and dealt out refreshments to their many callers, besides entertaining them in various other ways. The boys at a later hour, as usual, had to gather up all of the old wagons and buggies, gates, barrels, boxes, etc., and pile them up in front of the doors of those to whom they wanted to pay their compliments. We are glad that there was no destruction of property this time, as heretofore. So apparently, the Midwestern white middle-class habit at the turn of the century was the boys would run around and steal stuff and either leave it in front of houses of people they didn't like or set it on fire if you are to believe the Hollywood depiction. I can't imagine what Halloween would look like if that happened right now. Here now is a story from one of our listeners. Hello, friends. This is Aurelie Jones of Dead Keen Family History, and I am delighted to take part in this Skelly Relly segment of the From Paper to People podcast. I want to share a story with you about a really special experience. I guess you could call it a supernatural experience that I had with a relative who is not connected to me by blood, but who is connected to me by love. Our saga begins nearly 200 years ago in an old country of the north at a place and time when the air was clean and crisp, when snug wooden houses clustered around farmyards or beside deep, clear lakes that were ringed by forests fragrant with pine. And into this Sweden of old, on a farm gourd called Tulsaboda, in March of the year 1825, just as the birch and the rowan trees were beginning to bud, there was born a baby girl, and she was named Inga Svensdotter. Like all the girls of Tulsaboda Gord, Inga Svensdotter's childhood would have been full of labor and of learning. She would have learned to sew a fine straight hem, to distinguish a good mushroom from a deadly one, and to make nourishing soup of rose hips to serve as a tonic in the deep winter chill. For although in the summertime the blueberries and strawberries grew wild and the sun hardly set, the winter was dark and long and bitterly cold. Inga Sven's daughter would have known, as do all the children of the North, that there are elemental powers in this world beyond human control, and we survive together if we are to survive at all. Inga would have learned young to treasure light, for in the lands of the North, light equals life. And when celebrating the light, whether acknowledging the return of the midsummer sun or commemorating the birth of the Son of God, Inga and all her community, old and young, both the highborn and the humble, would have held hands together and danced for joy. 
The years passed for Inga in learning and labor and dancing, and she grew to womanhood and caught the eye of a local swain by the name of Ole Svensson. Ole courted Inga and won her favor, and the two sweethearts were married and had soon filled their home with children. First came a son, Ole Olson, and Rechtig Fingosse, then a blessed daughter named Hanna, then Sven and Bengtha, and sweet Inga the first, oh, Starkash Lilleborn. Poor Inga the first lived only five months before she perished with the whooping cough. But just as delicate blue sipor flowers push their way through the snow to blossom anew each spring, so life was renewed for Inga and Ole with the arrival of Inga the second. And as they watched her grow hale and hardy into a strong little girl, their grief was eased and their contentment would have been complete were it not for a bothersome cough that Mama Inga just couldn't seem to shake. The coughing grew steadily worse and soon Inga was coughing blood. By the time baby Elsa was born in September of 1864, Inga could hardly draw breath and seemed to be fading each day. There was no dancing for Yule that year. For baby Elsa was burning with a fever, and Inga was so weak, so weak. When baby Elsa died in January, Ole could hardly mourn her passing for it seemed more a mercy to him that the child would not have to grow up without a mother, for Inga had the dreaded lungsot, and there was no cure. A few weeks later, Inga Svensdotter completed her rich life of labor and learning and loving and her tired, diseased body was laid to rest. In the month of March, 1865, just as the birch and rowan trees were budding. And now we fast forward about 140 years. My husband and I were doing some digging into my ancestral roots in Chicago, and we discovered a really interesting census record for my third great-grandparents, Christina and Olaf Swenson. We noticed that there were two men living with the Swenson family who had a completely different last name. These men were named Oliver and Sven Olsen. Well, this kind of intrigued us, so we did some investigating and discovered to my utter amazement that my third great-grandfather, Olaf, had been previously married. When he lived in Sweden, he was known by the name Ole Svensson, and he had been married to a woman named Inga Sven's daughter, who had unfortunately passed away, and that these two men living with him years later in Chicago were his sons from his previous marriage. And this was a wonderful and exciting discovery. 
Well, one day, my husband and I had set aside some time to devote a bit of love and attention to our ancestors, and we had names of our ancestors written down on pieces of paper. So we had all these little pieces of paper in front of us with names on them. And my husband said to me, who shall we start with? And without even thinking, I just instantly said, the Olsen boys. And that is when I had a most wonderful and memorable experience. As I said the words, the Olsen boys, I found myself filled with this incredible love for these men, a pride and joy. It was as if my heart were just saying over and over, my sons, my sons. I understood that they weren't my feelings, but the feelings of Inga Sven's daughter. And she was rejoicing that we had remembered her boys. And it was just such a special and wonderful experience. And I'm filled with love for Inga Sven's daughter. I'm inspired by her life. We have no connection by blood, but I feel close to her and I feel, I feel blessed by her. She loved my forefather and he loved her and her children were the older brothers and sisters of my second great grandmother and played such an important role in her life in helping her become who she was. And in a way, all of that loving and caring has come down through the generations to me and helped to make me who I am. I'm so grateful and honored to have Inga Sven's daughter in my family tree and as part of my heritage and family story. There's a Swedish folk song that I love, and when I think of Inga, I think of this song. It's called Vem Can Siegla, or Who Can Sail, and it's a song about the power of human connection. At the end of the song, there's a person who's declaring that they can do marvelous things, that they can sail without wind, that they can row without oars. But then they confess that even they do not have sufficient power to part from their dear ones without shedding a tear. Have you ever had an experience like that? An experience with an ancestor coming through and speaking to you the way that Inga did to Orly? That's happened to me. And oddly, it's happened to me with other people's ancestors more than it has with my own ancestors speaking to me about themselves and our family. I find myself 
being visited by and interpreting the words of the ancestors of people for whom I do work. And then I pass on messages that I've been asked to pass, things that people need to hear that they didn't know. It's an extraordinary experience, and it can happen any time of year, not just at Halloween. But I really love that Orly shared that story with us. Now I have another story for you. It's so fantastic. It has its own background music. So let's hear it now. Hi, my name is Lorna Moore, and I'm going to share a little about one of my ancestors, whose name is Polk Newton. Polk Newton was featured in the Atlanta Constitution newspaper in the 1800s. You may ask why. Here's the unpleasant scoop. He was labeled a murderer. As the writer describes in several of his articles of this tragic event, Newton was showing too much attention to a woman who supposedly was the wife of another Negro man named Wright Dixon. Both men worked on a farm owned by James N. Price. Wright Dixon confronted Pope Newton and warned him to stay away from his woman or he would kill him by daylight. Newton didn't wait for Dixon to carry out his threat. Newton got a shotgun and found Dixon in a nearby town of Williamsburg. He shot Dixon, which Dixon died from his wounds days later. The writer continues to describe Pope Newton as a very light-skinned mulatto who doesn't look like a murderer. He looks white. Newton was immediately arrested and was transported to the county jail in Morgan. But as the wagon crossed the Pachita Creek Bridge, Newton leaped from the wagon in the semi-darkness of twilight. Shots were fired by the deputy, so they thought Newton had died somewhere in the creek trying to escape. Newton was later found in Mitchell County where he was working on a farm. He was placed in the Mitchell County Jail until he was brought back to Calhoun County to wait for his trial. So this is a little tidbit on one of my ancestors that uh, was featured in the Atlanta Constitution newspaper in the 1800s. Wow, what a story. And for that matter, what production values, Lorna? Thank you so much for that. I think it's really something that we all need to pay attention to. The idea that a man could be called not a murderer because he looks white. Amazing. And yet, not amazing. But it's really amazing to have someone who's infamous in your family tree. I have some of those, but they're not infamous for murder. They're more infamous for marrying more women than they ought to at the same time and things like that. 
But what I have for you next is not a scandal. It's a recipe. This one is one that my father absolutely loves, and it's a big craver for him. He craves this, especially in cold weather. It's a recipe of his mother's, my grandmother, Agnes, and it's bread pudding. Really simple and straightforward. You need five slices of day-old bread, two tablespoons of butter, a half cup of sugar, a quarter teaspoon of salt, three eggs beaten, three cups of scalded milk, and a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon. Break the bread into small pieces and put it in a buttered baking dish. Stir salt and all but two tablespoons of sugar into the eggs. Add milk and stir to mix well. Pour over bread and let stand 10 minutes to soak up the milk. Mix cinnamon with the remaining sugar and sprinkle over the top. Bake about one hour at 350 degrees. A knife inserted in the center should come out clean. Pretty straightforward stuff. I've got another one. This is a craving of mine. Absolutely, as soon as the leaves start to turn and you can smell that wonderful rot in the air, it's time for apple crumble. This is a recipe of my mother's. I'm not really sure where she got it, but it's something that she made reliably for us throughout the fall and the winter. Two pounds of tart green cooking apples like Granny Smith's, peeled, cored, and sliced, a quarter cup of apple cider, three quarters of a cup of flour, a half cup of sugar, a half cup of brown sugar, packed, three quarters of a teaspoon of cinnamon, a half teaspoon of nutmeg, a pinch of salt, and a stick of butter or margarine. Put apples in a shallow two-quart baking dish, pour cider over them, combine flour, sugars, cinnamon, nutmeg, salt in a medium bowl, cut in butter until mixture is crumbly, spread over the apples, bake in a preheated oven until apples are tender and topping is light brown, 40 to 45 minutes. Serve warm, top with ice cream or whipped cream. Optional. Although who would think that that would be optional? Of course you're going to have ice cream, right? Next, I have some more treats for you from Oralee Jones. These are recordings of her father-in-law, Hugh Jones. The one thing that you need to know, for those of you who aren't addicted to British television, is that ta means thank you. So when someone is asked to say ta or says ta to you, that's what they mean. I let him do the storytelling. My mother's second brother was called Joe, outside the family, or Charlie, inside the family, because he was Charles Joseph Marsden. One day, a business associate of his father called, and he had a present for Joe. It was a toy train set, in the days when uh, all trains were driven by steam, no electric, no diesel. Um, they were known as chuffer trains, or puffer trains, either. Anyway, he had a toy train set for Joe, and he gave it to him, and Joe just took it and looked at it and said, Nout. So his father said, Charlie, say ta. Nothing. Charlie, say ta. Nothing. So his father took the train set and put it on the top of the old Victorian mantelpiece, which was way above his head. 
He certainly couldn't reach it. He couldn't climb up to it or anything. And his father said, there, it's going to stay there until you say tar. Will you say tar? Nothing. And so it stayed there. And for a few years after that, Charlie would greet visitors to the house with the immortal words, there's a puffer on the mantelpiece for Charlie if Charlie will say ta, but Charlie won't. For this next story, you need to know that pudding is dessert and that jam roly-poly, <laughs> which is a name that I love, is what we would call a jelly roll here in the United States. Here's another from Hugh Jones. My mother had four brothers. The five children were used to uh, frequently having plum duff, or jam roly-poly actually, for pudding after a meal. Their father was a fair man, and he realised that the two ends of a jam roly-poly were mainly pastry and not much jam, and were not popular. So he would ask for volunteers amongst the children who would have pudding ends. This particular day, Jam Roly-Poly came and father said, oldest first, Tom, pudding ends? Uh, no, thank you, father. Hmm. Charlie, pudding ends? No, thank you, father. Our mother came next, but she was only a girl, so we missed one. Reg, pudding ends? No, thank you, father. Bert, pudding ends? No, thank you, father. Hmm. So he turned to Doris and said, Doris, pudding ends? And she said, Yes, thank you, father. And he took a knife and he cut the thing in half and he had half and she had half and they each had pudding ends. In order to understand this one, for my American audience, you'll have to know that a chamber pot is the means by which a person uses the outhouse without leaving the house and there's no bathroom. You get what I'm saying? Uncle Ernest and his wife Gertrude, my aunt, and I think he was um, Aunt Gladys and a few of the family uh, as a group were on holiday tour in Pembrokeshire and they were staying at a ho at a, a farmhouse instead of a hotel, a lot cheaper. Well, the, f the first morning after they came down for breakfast, the farmer's wife had made, made porridge for them. Now, there were so many there and she wasn't used to it and she didn't have a a receptacle big enough for serving the porridge, that she got a chamber pot from one of the bedrooms and washed it out and dried it and filled that with porridge and took it to the table and started, uh, Mrs. Woodward Court, some porridge? And she looked at the, the pot and said, Oh, no, thank you. And then, uh, Mrs. Sergeant, um, would you like some porridge? Uh, no, thank you. And so it went round all of them until eventually only Uncle Ernest was left. And he thought, oh, my goodness, this poor woman has gone to all this effort of making porridge. 
and nobody's taken her up on her offer. I'll have to do it. And she said, Mr. Mr. Woodward Court, will you have some porridge? And he said, oh, yes, thank you. A little bit, please, from the middle. Hugh's final story is about some beer. Uncle Joe came to stay with us, and my mother, uh, knowing her brother, sent him off, uh, sent me off, to the Thomas Arms Hotel across the road with some money to buy some beer for him. She said, bring a crate. So I got a crate of a dozen bottles and brought it back and gave it to Joe, and he said, thanks, lad. And he took a bottle and took the cap off and was about to drink it when I said, stop, just a moment. Look, there's something funny floating in the in the beer. That doesn't look right. That, that That's bad beer. And he said, hey, lad, there's no such thing as bad beer, and swallowed the lot. Next is a story from Chris Olson, a very loyal listener and actually a great buddy now of mine. And it's a really fascinating story that comes from the Revolutionary War era here in the United States, before the United States were the United States. Take it away, Chris. Hi, this is Chris Olson saying hi to you from Spartanburg, South Carolina. We just moved recently from New Jersey, so that's going to mark a shift from my focus of my maternal lines that are all in the New York, New Jersey area to my paternal lines, which are all from this area. Um, I'm going to share one of my favorite family stories, and it is from my maternal line, and that surname is Westfall. And Westfalls originally came to um, this continent in about 1640 when a young jury in Westfall came on a boat at about age 11, and the rest is history. So this story is about the brother of one of our direct ancestors in that line. This man's name is Daniel Westfall. Daniel Westfall had a farm near Minnesink Island during the Revolutionary War. Parts of that land were rented out for the soldiers to build bases and encampments on. I recently found the court records that told this incredible story about Daniel, his wife, and Lieutenant Katuski. I think I'm saying that right. One night, Lieutenant Katuski got drunk, and he rode his horse into the house of Daniel Westfall. He demanded to see him and was shouting all sorts of words and threatening him. He busted down the door, and he rode his horse right into the house and right up on the bed where Daniel's wife was sleeping. He ordered the two men with him to help capture Daniel Westfall, the farmer, because he said he was a rascal. Turns out rascal was a big enough insult those days to warrant duels. Now it's just something that like, if our grandparents say it, we go, mm, rascals. Mother Westfall ran to the officer's tents nearby and pled for their help. The commanding officer, a Captain Baron de Frey, and his men went to the home. Sure enough, Katuski was there, drunk, ranting, raving. Daniel was thrown into the cellar, and Katuski was breaking everything in the house. The captain demanded that he stand down and leave, and Katuski just kept on going, and he drew his sword. The captain said to him, with quotes, that he must not behave in such a way, and that he wasn't in Poland anymore, and if he didn't calm down, he would lock him up. Well, Katuski drew out his sword and threatened the captain. Captain Defray grabbed him by the hair and punched him square in the face. 
Kutuski was arrested, and they held a court-martial that very night, with witnesses all supporting the story that Kutuski was out of control. He was drunk, and they all had a very similar version of the events, including the officers he brought with him. It was a really clear case. They found him guilty and ordered him to be cashiered from the army. I didn't know what that word meant. I'd never heard it. So when I looked it up, it was a really big deal. When a person is cashiered from the service, they're not just kicked out, but they're kicked out without honor, and they're stripped in a very public fashion of their status. Their sword gets broken, their decorations on their uniforms get pulled off, and everyone in the town and the army sees that they have been shamed out with all these witnesses, and such was to be the fate of Katuski. But he wasn't done yet. That night, Kutuski escaped, and he was gone by dawn. In the letters that are written to George Washington, that are all documented, the head of the camp wrote to George Washington in Philadelphia, warning him that Kutuski was headed his way, and gave a summary of the events and said Kutuski might be trying to get there first so he could tell his side of the story first and change his fate. And the general was right. George Washington wrote back and said Kutuski had made it to Philadelphia and had met with him already. He told them there'd been some drinking and some damage done by him and that he was not going to be able to pay the debt that was owed to Daniel Westfall as a result of the court-martial. And he asked that he be allowed to return to his home in Poland and be done with this war. George Washington granted his permission and said the matter was to be considered resolved as Kutuski was not going to cause any more problems again. He was already on his way to Europe. Once in Europe, Kutuski changed his name and never returned to the United States. And who knows if Mrs. Westfall ever slept soundly in that bed again. So that's one of my scally rally stories. I can just imagine the middle of the night, old Mrs. Westfall warm in her bed at this crazy time and the door comes crashing down and in comes this drunk soldier who rides his horse right up on her bed, beats up her husband and locks him in the cellar. Crazy story. That's one of my favorites. I may get an extra deadbolt for the door after hearing about some guy riding his horse up into somebody's bed. That makes me really uncomfortable. Wow. The next story is from Chris Fariolo. He's also a very loyal listener to the group and a good friend. And it's about that same idea of being able to contact or be in touch with someone who's on the other side. I hope you like spooky stories. And since Halloween is approaching, I have a great one for you. In 2002, my paternal grandmother, Olympia Carapas, passed away. She was born in 1920 and was basically your typical Italian grandmother. Think of the grandmas you see on pasta grannies. She was like that, only without the thick Italian accent. She'd pinch my cheeks, cook all kinds of Italian goodies, and talk about the family for hours at a time. It was fantastic. I was very sad when she passed away. She died in January 2002, and she missed out on two major events that were on the horizon for our family. I was graduating college that May, and my brother was getting married that August. I was sad that she was going to miss those events because growing up, we would see her almost constantly. She would stay over at our house every Christmas since we lived only a few miles away from each other. So suffice it to say, she and I were very close. When Grandma Orly passed away, 
My parents and I had to get the house ready to be sold. We held the yard sale for our clothes and assorted knickknacks. Don't worry, family heirlooms were definitely not for sale. In fact, I have a collection of hurricanes and swords in my room. Those are safe. Sharp, but safe. I remember being inside the living room, thinking about the good times I spent watching television with her. And while looking at this picture of my great-grandparents, I kept hearing her voice in my head. It kept saying, Christopher, over and over again. No one else was nearby. My parents were outside dealing with the customers. We even had someone come by to take a look at the house itself. The house once belonged to my great-grandfather, Vincenzo, and had been in the family for decades. We never thought the house was haunted before now. I told my parents what happened, and naturally I was a little confused. My father then told me the story of how one time he was working in the basement of our house and thought that he felt the presence of his own father. He even thought that he smelled them. Apparently he had an unmistakable body odor. My grandfather and my dad built the house I grew up in, and we often wondered if his spirit was still there. Dad then wondered if the same held true for Grandma Oli's house. Before we left for the night, Dad thought it would be a great idea to test the theory. He was a doctor by trade, so we needed to conduct an experiment. He then put a Hershey's bar on the kitchen table and locked all the doors from the inside before locking up the house itself. The next day, we returned to finish up the yard sale and found that a crumpled up wrapper was all that was left of the candy bar. Next to it was a tissue. And the weirdest thing of all is, there was no sign of a break-in. Grandma Oli always used a tissue as a napkin, and she loved Hershey's chocolate. If I didn't believe in ghosts before, I surely did after that day. It wasn't long after she passed away that I began my genealogical adventure, and I hope she appreciates me finding out so much about the family from Waldo, and of course finding all of our cousins via DNA. Though, you know, I think she knew about most of them. Sometimes I can even still hear her say, Christopher, if I think about her long enough. Is she still with me? I like to think that she is, and always will be. Miss you, Nana. I've had similar experiences, most of which I don't really talk about. But one I think is kind of funny. Whenever I'm ill and I'm not eating very much, which is always a sign that I'm ill, because I am all about the food. I smell my mother's cooking, and there's no one around. I live by myself. There's a whole yard on either side between me and any of my neighbors. But I smell chicken and noodles, or I smell soup, or some kind of casserole, something that is a familiar smell. It's a food that I liked from childhood. And I know what it is. It's my mom saying, I know you're sick, but get up and eat. And so whenever I smell food now when I'm ill, and it comes absolutely from nowhere, I just say, okay, mom, thanks. I'm getting up to eat. And I make sure that I make myself a meal. 
The next story is from Stacy Cole. She works to document the names of enslaved persons in Liberty County, Georgia, and has a wonderful website called theyhadnames.net. Here's her story. This is Stacy Cole from Brunswick, Georgia. My story is about two of my ancestors, John and Sarah Ashmore, who in 1804 were farming on a small island called Moss Island in the South Newport River, just inland from the Georgia coast, near what is now the Harris Neck Wildlife Refuge. They had four children, Joseph 13, John 10, Sarah 3, and Elizabeth an infant. For those of you who don't know coastal Georgia, it can be a terribly harsh environment. It's gorgeous with its huge live oaks draped with Spanish moss and the spectacular marsh views, but it has vicious mosquitoes, biting gnats, poisonous snakes, alligators. Well, you get the picture. Coastal Georgia is also right at, and sometimes below, sea level. In late August of 1804, a violent hurricane swept across Jamaica. According to Walter Fraser in his book, Low Country Hurricanes, it was the first great storm of the new century in that region. It inflicted terrible damage in the Caribbean, and it got stronger as it moved north and curved toward the American coastline. It started hitting the coastline on September 6th and 7th. By Friday, September 7th, Fraser described it as an immense tropical cyclone that was still miles offshore, but soon would simultaneously envelop large portions of both Georgia and South Carolina. By Saturday, September 8th, everyone along that coast must have known they were in for something, but what? The Ashmores on Tiny Moss Island were unknowingly right in the path. That day, as the wind howled and whipped up waves in the river, they must have been fearful, but without all the modern technology that tells us today what to expect. Similar weather had happened before without lasting damage. But that was not to be their fate. Let me continue in the words of the Reverend Charles Colcock Jones, who told the story at Sarah's funeral in 1847. He said, The water driven in by the storm overflowed the entire island and washed away every vestige of the settlement. Mrs. Ashmore lost a child from her arms and two others were drowned. She floated ashore on a part of the house, as did Mr. Ashmore and his son Joseph and a servant, neither of them knowing that another done survived. On reaching the shore, when the storm somewhat abated, Mr. Ashmore whooped hello, hoping against hope that some one of his family might have been preserved. Someone answered him, and making his way through the storm and water and drifted trees and sedge, to his inexpressible joy, he discovered his wife. Their thoughts then turned upon their children. He whooped again and was answered by his son Joseph and a servant woman. He collected them together, and they were all that remained alive. He had, by the providence of God, lost everything they possessed in this life. But although they had escaped a watery grave and had met with so heavy a loss and such deep affliction, yet their hearts were not turned to God and they passed through it all without any permanent or saving change in their character. Jones went on to describe that Ashmore set immediately to work, put up a small house on the mainland. He took the servant woman back to Moss Island where they raised a crop. Mrs. Ashmore in her new home on the mainland with a cheerful heart and true energy and independence, went into the field around her house without any assistance and raised provisions enough to support the whole family for the year. You may be wondering about the servant woman. 
She was a slave. I don't know how many enslaved people were lost that day on Moss Island, but Walter Fraser tells us that 70 alone were drowned at nearby Broughton Island. Their stories, of course, are lost to us. From my research, I believe that slave woman on Moss Island was named Sibby. Five years later, John Ashmore raped her and fathered a child who was named Toby. Sibby's modern-day descendants and I know that because of DNA, which reveals to us that the same individual can both suffer a terrible tragedy and inflict great tragedy on others. So Joseph, the child who survived, who lost his younger brother and two sisters all in an instant, he grew up to be my third great-grandfather. One of the things I love about Stacy's story is not just that it has history to it, not just that it's about her family, but also that it has a moral and that it has something to say about history and about today. Next, I'm going to share with you a gem from my family. Back in 1983, I had already started work on my family tree. My uncle Patrick had given it to me in 1980. And he was down in Texas, and his mother, my grandmother, was visiting there. And so she and he sat down with a tape recorder, apparently at my orders, and with my little cousin crawling all over them, they recorded some stories. And this is one of the stories that tells you a little bit about the family I come from and their sense of humor. It's about church and about some things that my uncle did as a child in Pecos, Texas, to do with church. Here it is. Well, let's see. Oh, when we lived in Pecos. And I broke into the church uh, announcement You and box. David. Yes. David, who was the undertaker's David son. David Wallace. Lived right, Wallace is their name. He lived right behind us. You broke into the church. Uh, the... They don't do that that way. Oh, they do. Oh, yes. Marquee. Washington Courthouse. They They have that in the yard. Yeah. Our church has one. They wouldn't have violated it. Gives the name (laughs) of the pastor and the sermon for the next Sunday and the time for Sunday school and the time for church. And you and David took all those letters out and rearranged everything. Not only that, but then I think the next week. You went to Sunday school together every Sunday, and you and David held hands and got up and sang "Pistol Pack and Mama." Oh my God! Because the teacher said we're gonna we're gonna let each of you sing whatever little uh, religious song you want to sing. Jesus loves me, this I know. Yeah, bringing in the shoes. And so you and David got up and sang "Pistol Pack and Mama." Oh, I remember. I loved that song. Yes, you did. And then drinking the beer in a cabaret, dancing with a blonde. Somebody Well lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol packing mama. Lay that pistol down. I like telling stories and I like hearing people tell stories. Remember that I interviewed my dad so that he could tell stories to you. But my favorite thing are these little gems, these few rare recordings that my uncle made with my great-uncle Gordon, with my grandmother, with my great-grandmother. 
And those stories, they are the best thing. There are other stories that my grandmother tells about my great-grandmother and that my great-grandmother tells about her parents and all of her cousins. I hope that you are all in the practice of taking folklore. And right now with COVID, I hope that you're using particularly Zoom because you can record both sides of the conversation. Those little pieces of heaven, you will be so grateful for them in the future and so happy to hand them down. They're so important. I can't say it enough. This last one is probably, of all the things that we've talked about and heard today, the thing that's actually scaring me and that will actually keep me awake. It's from the Crawfordsville Weekly Journal of 6 June 1902, and it's What to Do with Locusts. The locust corpses are accumulating in such large quantities in some parts of town as to give forth a terrible stench. At Lane Place, seven wheelbarrow loads of shells and bodies have been hauled off and burned. The locust sings loudest at noon, hardly at all at night. Professor M.B. Thomas is salting down a big box of locusts, which he will take back with him to Burt Lake to use for bait fishing. The locust makes fine feed for poultry of all kinds. The male locust makes all the noise, but the female does the business. She has already begun to lay her eggs in the tender branches of young trees. Two distinguished citizens of Lauraville, Maryland, gave a locust pie feast last Saturday to about 20 invited guests. The pies were prepared by a well-known caterer of that city who gives the following recipe. There were about 50 locusts to the pie. I first scaled them and trimmed off the wings, legs, and heads. Then, putting them in a wooden bowl, I chopped the locusts, mixed with stale bread soaked in milk, preparing them the same as hamburger steak. Instead of salt and pepper, I added sugar and rhubarb flavor and cream to soften the ingredients, which I then put into a regular pie bottom, the same as custard pie, and covered with a cross-open top. The pies were then placed in an oven and baked. Richard A. Graham, an electrician of Lauraville, who was one of the partakers of the pie, declared it closely resembled partridge, while Mr. Altland and Mr. Brochot claimed it tasted like hamburger steak. No. Just no. No. So if anything gives you the willies, after this episode, I don't think that it will be fears of a horse riding up into your bed, which actually happened. I don't think it will be thoughts of murderers and ghosts. I think it will be that someone feeds you a locust pie and that you didn't know that it was a locust pie until after you swallowed Thank you all for being along for this, the first ever Skelly Rellies episode. I hope that next year you will submit a recorded story about one of your ancestors or a recipe or maybe both. That would be wonderful. In the meantime, you know what I always say. Expect surprises. Boom. Boom.